Good morning again, everyone, and happy Mother's Day again. I love that video clip, and I thought I'd throw in that thing at the end to tell moms how sorry we are for all the grief we've caused them over the years. My mom passed away many years ago, but I still miss her, and I still, when she was alive, after we were married and had kids of our own, I regularly went back to her and my dad and said, I am so sorry. For all the stuff, I have two brothers and three boys, just a little over a year between us, and and uh, we we drove them crazy. And, and I'm so thankful for for my mom and all the blessing that she was to me. And I'm so thankful for all of the moms that are here today. We've got a gift for you that we're going to give you as you leave today. Uh, I want to thank Philip Allen, uh, one of our members who helped us procure some beautiful plants that we're going to give you today uh, as a way to say we love you and we thank you. Uh, and some of you are thinking, I killed all the plants I ever get. Uh, th these are pretty hardy plants. So I think you're going to be all right if you just water them occasionally. I think they'll be good. But uh, they're beautiful plants, and I'm so thankful we could do this for you. Uh, we also, after the service, we have a photo booth out in the cafe area. So you could stop by and get some pictures, and they will be stamped on there for Lakeshore Christian Church Mother's Day at this date. It'll be a great memento for you to have with mom. So uh, if your mom is here or you are a mom, stop in there and get some photos made. We'd love for you to do that. But right now, what I want you to do is all the moms, I know you probably just want to sit down and relax, but I'm going to have you stand up, okay? All the moms, if you would, just stand up right where you are. Keep standing if you would, please. Just keep standing, moms. I want you to know that we cherish you and your role and, and the impact that you have in the world as a mother. I'm going to be talking about that in the message today. But right now, I just want to have a prayer over you. So all of us that are here, if you would, as you're sitting, uh, just hold a hand out over near toward a mom near you. And let's just pray over these moms right now, okay? Father, I just want to thank you for these mothers that are here today. It is such an awesome responsibility. It is such hard work. And I know it's rewarding in so many ways, but it's a challenge too. And for those that are still in that process of raising their children, I pray you would give them wisdom and discernment. For those that have adult children and maybe grandchildren now, I pray you will continue to give them wisdom to offer good direction and counsel and example to their family. I thank you for the blessing they are to our church family, Father. The impact they're making in the world is eternal in nature. Help them to realize that you created them, designed them, knit together in their mother's womb for this role that you gave them. And I thank you for the blessing that they are in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Let's applaud them one more time. Thank you. I want you moms to know, too, Lakeshore uh, did something else to honor you, and, and I just want you to be aware of it. There's an organization called CORE Foundation that I love very much. Got a good friend that, uh, that heads that up, Dennis Bratton, uh, a pastor uh, from down in Florida who started this uh, CORE Foundation, and they're focused on Haiti. Uh, because it's the poorest nation in the world even still today. And in Haiti, the hardest thing is for families to have the ability to support themselves without support from somewhere else from the outside. And CORE developed this ministry where they help 
farmers set up uh, raising chickens. They help them get uh, the startup money to get the chicken coop and everything they need, all the supplies. So they raise chickens and they uh, produce eggs, which they sell and also uh, sell the chickens too. And, and so the, one reason it's such a good pairing there, uh, a couple of reasons. One is they have such a lack of protein in their diet in Haiti that causes a lot of illness there. So the eggs and the chickens help provide protein in their diets. But also it allows families to become self-supporting. So even though they start, give them the startup money and the equipment and everything, they pay that back and then they're still able to support their own families. And they've had great success with this program in Haiti. It's helping more and more families. And they do it through the local church there where they pick these families through the local churches. So there's a connection to the church and with sharing the gospel of Jesus and the good news there. So I love how they put all of that together. Where they do a Mother's Day uh, fun drive every year to help some of those, uh, many of those farmers in Haiti are moms uh, raising their families on their own. And this fundraiser they do is specifically to help Haitian mom farmers uh, and give them some help and some support. So in honor of all the moms at Lakeshore, we purchased... 10 cases of eggs, which is 3,600 eggs from CORE in your honor to help support Haitian farmers there. So thank you so much. Now here's the cool thing. They have a sponsor for this fund drive that even though we purchased 10 cases, they doubled it. So actually it's 20 cases and over 7,000 eggs that were purchased through the Haitian farmers there. We just want you to know that's one way we wanted to honor you because there's something about, I know you love being recognized and all, some of you don't, but most of you, that's nice to be recognized, but it's also nice to do something in your honor to help others that need help as well. So we are continuing a series we started last week called Be Encouraged. And last week, uh, Mike Swartz shared the message, did a great job. I'm so thankful he could do that. Uh, I was on a trip with my wife and we had a great trip. So thankful to be back this week. But, but he started out with a great message on, uh, from the book of 2 Corinthians. In this series, we're going straight through the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, the first letter to the Corinthian church had been a hard letter. If you remember last week, uh, he had had to offer a lot of uh, rebuke and correction and disciplinary action to the church because there were a lot of bad things going on there. So if you'll be turning now to the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to still be picking up in chapter 1 and verse 12. And we'll be going through the verses into chapter 2 and verse 4. So you can pull that up on your smartphone or tablet or open up your Bibles there. This week we're looking at, I, I called the message a standard for leadership. And the reason I thought this fit well with Mother's Day is this. Moms around the world may not think of that as a leadership role, but it is. It is one of the most important leadership roles in our society. Moms have such an opportunity to influence the generations coming behind us because of the role God gave them in bringing children into the world and then helping in that process with raising those children and teaching them and spending time with them. It's a huge leadership role. And many of you have had great moms along the way, and I'm so thankful for that. But I know there's some that maybe your mom was, was not there for you or, or 
was not the mom that you hoped that she would be or wanted her to be. And that's okay, too, because here's the thing. In Christ, we can be made new, and we can get a fresh start, and we can, we can break cycles and start new cycles that are better, and we can do that moving forward from here and now. Here's the other thing I want you to know. For some people, I've heard of people and seen a few people post this. I just hate Mother's Day now. I just don't want to even celebrate Mother's Day because you've lost your mother. And maybe you lost them somewhere around Mother's Day. Here's what I want you to understand. I lost my mom too, and I miss her too, just like you miss your mom if you've lost your mom. But you know what you need to do is turn that around and quit being miserable about it and start recognizing how blessed you were to have your mom and thank God on this day even more than ever that you had the mom that you had. And thank God every day that you've got the memories that you've got and, you've, and you can take what you've learned from her and pass that along to others. Make it a celebration of your mom instead of an awful day for you. Now, I know it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy just to flip that switch and do that, but you can do it. I, I've had to do it and, and I make this a day of celebration and remembrance of my mom now. And you can do that too. So let's look at, we're going to look at five key characteristics of leadership that we learn from the Apostle Paul as he addresses the church at Corinth. Uh, here's what has happened. He, he had written this letter and he had made a visit there, but now he, has, he had told them that he was going to go back and visit again. But things changed, circumstances changed, and he didn't go back to visit with them again. And now he's, he's got some criticism from them about why he didn't go back and see them again after he told them that he would. And so he's clarifying some of that. But in the way that he handles this and handles his interaction with the Corinthian church, we can see some great characteristics of leadership here. And, and, and whether you're a mom or not, whether you're uh, in a, a role that you think of as leadership, here's what I want you to know. If you are a Christ follower, then you have been called by God to lead others to Christ. That is part of your role. That is part of what we're, we're, we're not only supposed to be disciples, we're supposed to be disciples who make disciples. That means we lead other people to find their way to Jesus. So we're all called to a leadership role. So we all need to develop these characteristics with God's help, these characteristics of leadership in our lives, even if you don't think of yourself as a leader. Let's look in verse 12 here. Let's start there of First Corinthians. Oops. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. So the first characteristic that he introduces here is integrity. He says, we've conducted ourselves, our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world with integrity. So there are three words in this first verse that I want to focus on for a minute because they carry great insight into what a leader needs to be, how a leader needs to conduct themselves. If you want to have the influence as a leader that God wants you to have. The first word is he says, our conscience testifies, the word conscience. Now, we, we've heard the saying, you've heard it, right? Let your conscience be your guide. And, and there is some good to that statement. There really is. The problem is the scripture also teaches us that you can dull your conscience. You can sear your conscience. You can, you can destroy the good benefits of your conscience. Don't you know, we've seen reports of this, people who have committed hideous crimes who seem to feel no remorse for it whatsoever. 
It's like their conscience doesn't bother them at all, no matter what they've done. That's because they took a conscience that God gave them and they seared it. They, they destroyed its ability to guide and direct them in the right way. On the other hand, you can train your conscience to do what God designed it to do. Now, how do you train your conscience? Well, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago from Romans 12. Remember, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your minds. See, that's where the conscience is. It's the mind telling you things, making you feel things, right? So if you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, making it new so that now it thinks the way God thinks, then that will be a conscience that can guide you properly. And so Paul is saying, as a Christ follower, my conscience testifies, understanding what God wants for me as a leader for you, I can say that I've done what I was supposed to do in good conscience. Had he not trained his conscience well, that wouldn't be a good guide for him. But we know that he has because he goes on to talk about some of the other things. The second characteristic he talks about uh, is integrity. He says, our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationships with you with integrity. Now, what is integrity? Have you ever heard the phrase, you got to walk the talk? That's integrity. It's where you don't just talk about these things, you actually do these things. It's one thing to know in your mind the right thing to do, to know what's good and what's bad, and maybe train yourself to understand that. It's another thing to actually put it into practice. That's integrity. Integrity is if I tell you I'm going to do something, then as much as it's within my power, I'm going to do it. Now, he goes on to talk about how sometimes it's not in your power. Things have to change, and you can't do it. But, but integrity is you're going to make every effort. You're going to do what you say you're going to do. You're going to be who you claim to be. It's not talking about perfection. It's talking about direction of your life. It's talking about how if I claim as a leader, as a mom, as a dad, as a, as a worker at my, my job or a member of a ball team or in my classroom, if I'm saying that I'm a Christian, then there's integrity there when I live like a Christian and talk like a Christian. When I set the example I'm supposed to set as a Christ follower, that's having integrity as a, as a leader for Christ. One of the reasons that, that we don't often have the success in making disciples that God would want us to have is because they haven't seen the integrity in Christ followers in the past that they needed to see. And it causes them not to have that respect for and that desire to follow after someone who claims to be a Christian. In fact, for some people, if you let them know you're a Christian, immediately they put up a negative impression of what that means in their minds because of past experiences with people who claimed to be Christians but didn't have integrity as Christians in the way they were living their lives. You see, you can do a lot of damage without integrity as a Christ follower. But if you can have that integrity, you can have much greater impact in a good way for the cause of Christ. And Paul is saying, I conducted myself with you, me and my team conducted ourselves with you in a way that it was with integrity. And then he adds another word. He says, godly, what's that next word? sincerity. Now, the original word in the original language in the Greek is, is a word that literally means to be without wax. What's that got to do with sincerity, right? Without wax. 
Well, you have to know the history of the word in that culture. And that culture, they made beautiful porcelain bases and, and uh, different uh, pots and bowls and things like that out of porcelain. And they would form it and then they would heat it up in a kiln, which would solidify it and make it strong. But sometimes in the process of heating it up in a kiln, what would happen is a crack would form in the porcelain. Well, beautiful white porcelain, you could cover it up. What they would do was heat up some wax and pour it into the crack. And if you just looked at it sitting on a shelf or something, you'd never see the crack in the porcelain. You could pass it off as being a beautiful, perfect vase or bowl without it really being perfect. You could get by with that a little bit until somebody did this. When you hold it up to the light, you could still see the cracks. You see, here's the thing about our sincerity. We could put on an outward show for a little bit, but when it's held up against the light of the holiness of God, the cracks will still show. The flaws will still be there. So he's saying leaders need to conduct themselves with sincerity. They need to be sun-tested, no wax, no covering up, no trying to hide things. Instead of hiding our cracks with God, he gives us a way to deal with them, right? We all have cracks. We're all crackpots, right? Every one of us. <laughs> We're all crackpots. But what we do is we don't try to hide it and cover it up. We take it to God, come under the blood of Jesus, and he covers it with his blood. We don't have to pretend they're not there. In fact, that's the worst thing we can do. The best thing we can do is go to God with these things and let the blood of Jesus cover those for us. So conscience and integrity and sincerity, all of those things then, that's what the, the formula is for, for having the integrity as leaders that God wants us to have. Now, if, if we fail in any of these areas, here's what I want you to know. Our, our past doesn't dictate our present or our future, remember? We can go to God with those failures. We can ask for forgiveness. His mercies are new every day. He can give you a fresh start right now. We can get back on track in all of these areas so that we can have integrity leading out for Jesus. Well, the second word uh, thing that he reveals to us here is that a good leader, one of the characteristics of a good leader is clarity. Let's look at verse uh, 13 and 14 here, verses 13 and 14. He says, for we do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus he said, I didn't write anything to you. We haven't written anything to you that is not clear and easy for you to understand. I love that, the clarity that he talks about here, that, that we need to have as Christ followers, as leaders for Christ. There are those with, within church circles who want to impress uh, preachers and teachers that like to impress. So what they like to do is use big words and make sure everybody knows their education and all of that, right? And, and sometimes those who don't do that get criticized because they say they just don't have very deep messages. You know what the Apostle Paul said was most important? It's not how impressed they were with his intelligence and his training. Paul was a well-educated man, by the way. Had one of the finest educations you could get in that day. But he said, what my greatest desire is, is to speak and teach and write in a way that is clear and easy for you to understand what we're talking about. Jesus was known primarily as rabbi, teacher.
teacher. He's one of the greatest examples here. Jesus taught in plain, clear, using illustrations so everybody could understand what he was talking about. In fact, we know that's the case because the Pharisees and the Sadducees understood it so well, they knew he was getting after them. He was trying to make correction in their lives. They understood that that's what he was doing, and that's what angered them with Jesus because he was so clear on those things. You see, a good teacher doesn't try to impress. A good teacher tries to teach in a way that people understand what they're teaching. Moms raising kids, one of the best things you can do for your kids is to make it clear what you expect of them. To make the rules clear, to make the guidelines clear, to make, to make the directions clear and easy for them to understand. And if they're not consistent and they're not clear, then they have they have the struggle within them to try to live up to what you're wanting them to do, but they don't even know what it is sometimes because you haven't been clear with them on those things. Now, if you haven't been doing a good job of that, remember, you can start now. You can, you can, you can start at this point and moving forward, try to do this in a better way. With God's help, we can do this. But our culture has gotten away from this. Now, now, we're not the first culture to do that in our day and time. This has been the case for many, many years, for all the history of man, really, where people have learned that if you're not clear, then you can make things mean what you want them to mean, right? You could twist things around. I'll give you an example of some terms and words that are used today that you don't have to all agree on what they mean because people mean different things by them, right? Let me give you one example, a, a, a bill that's been before Congress, right? The Equality Act. Well, doesn't equality sound good? Absolutely. Who would be against equality? But if you actually read the bill, you would see some things in it that are not equality at all. In fact, they punish certain people in our culture, in our society, Christians in particular, Christian leaders in particular, Christian schools and organizations in particular would be punished by this act. It's not equality for everybody, but we're for equality, right? But you can take the word equality and make it mean, if you don't want to be clear, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean for equality. Well, then there's words like uh, we, we use the word liberal, right? And, and conservatives use the word liberal in a negative way, almost always. But the word liberal simply means generous. That's what it means. It means to be giving. That's what it means. Is that a bad thing? No. Now, you can take that and use it in a bad way, but because it's easier to give if it's somebody else's money, right? I'll give all of your money away with no problem at all. Right? But then the conservative is the same way. You take the word conservative, and some people mean something good by it. Some people mean something evil by it. Conservative usually means careful and, and, and trying to, to think things out and make the best choices. But conservative in some people's minds means to be stingy and greedy and not want anybody else to be able to have what you have, right? So you could take the same word and not be clear about what you mean by it. I'll give you one more. Religion. We've taken the word religion and most people think of it in a negative way today. Even Christians think of religion as a negative word. Here's what Christians are saying. They've been saying it for a long time. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, that's wrong. That's not true at all. Let me give you the definition of religion. Here, here's the way it's defined. Religion 
the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. Is that what Christianity is? Absolutely. Here's another definition added to that one. A particular system of faith and worship. Isn't that what Christianity is? A system of faith and worship? It also adds this. This is the kicker for me. A pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. Isn't that what Christianity should be for Christ followers? Here's the deal. Christianity is very much a religion. But it's a religion that's centered in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything about this religion springs forth from your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what determines your religious practice is that relationship that you have with Jesus. But Christians are going around saying, oh, but, but I love Jesus. It's just about my relationship with Jesus. And Jesus said clearly, if you love me, keep my commandments. You see, you can't separate those two things. Christianity is very much a religion. And it has teachings and practices that its followers are supposed to practice and teach. That's what makes it a religion. But it's centered in my relationship with Jesus. That's where I get my teaching. That's where I get my direction. That's where I get my example is in my relationship with Jesus. But you can't separate that out from practicing the teachings of Jesus. And that's what Christians are trying to do in our culture today is say it's just because I love Jesus. I don't have to practice the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus clearly says that's not the way this works. That's not the way Christianity works. If you love Jesus, you will want to practice the teachings of Jesus. So in Ephesians 4.15, Paul said this. Here's the approach we should take. Instead, he said, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So here's how we need to be clear. We need to speak the truth clearly. Make it easy for people to understand whether we're teaching children or we're teaching uh, other friends or, or coworkers or other adults in our lives. The teaching needs to be clear. It needs to be truthful. But it always needs to be tempered with love. Always. Looking back on my mom and some of the teaching and correction she did in my life, I, I know for a fact it was done out of love. At the time, I didn't quite understand all that, right? At the time, I resented it sometimes. At the time, I didn't like it at all. But it was done out of love because she really wanted what was best for me. Now, she didn't always get it right, I don't think. I don't think she did. I don't think... Sue Ann and I got it right every time with our kids, but I know the motivation behind it was always love. Well, here's what I know about God's teaching. He'll always get it right, but he'll also do it out of love. He'll always do it out of love. He wants what's best for his children. And so if we're going to be his disciples who make other disciples as leaders for him, we need to teach with clarity. The third uh, aspect or characteristic we see in this passage is transparency. Let's pick up with verse 15, 15 to 18. He says this, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? <laughs> he says in verse 18, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. 
Transparency is the idea that you say what you believe to be true and you try to practice it to the best of your ability, but sometimes things change. Sometimes you mess up. Sometimes things you can't control change around you and plans have to change. And what you said you were going to do, you can't do now. And that's what Paul's saying to them. I wasn't being fickle when I said I was going to come see you. I was really planning to come see you. In fact, I was planning to do it twice on the way there and on the way back. I was planning to stop in and see you both times. And things changed. I wasn't being fickle. But he was being honest about the fact that, yes, I said I was going to and no, I wasn't able to. Transparency is hard. We all have this tendency, especially sometimes as parents with our kids, not to let them think we mess up. Not to let them think we... We weren't able to do what we said we were going to do. In fact, some parents get themselves in serious trouble trying to make sure they do what they said they were going to do, even if circumstances have changed and they don't need to do it now. For example, we're going on this trip or we're going to buy this certain item and then finances change and circumstances change and now you can't really afford to do it. And instead of being transparent with your kids, you go borrow money or put things on credit cards and, and overextend yourself to do it as if that's going to be better than just being transparent with them about the fact that things have changed now. See, a better lesson for them would be to learn in life, things change. In life, you can't always do what you said you were going to do or hoped you would be able to do. In life, it doesn't always work that way. Don't our kids need to learn that? Because I guarantee you when they get out in the world as adults, they're going to have that happen to them. And they're going to remember what mom and dad did in that circumstance. You see, there's a cycle that you're forming here with how you do it gets cycled into their lives and maybe their kids' lives. So the sooner you set the cycle right, the better. And transparency is one of the best things. And if you mess up, here's what I want you to know. You don't have to give kids, young kids, all the details, but you do have to just say, you know, sometimes moms and dads mess up. Sometimes we make mistakes. And I'm sorry that that has happened. And I've asked God to forgive me, and I know he will, and I, I hope you will too. It's good to be transparent like that because they're going to need to learn to do that with God too. They're going to need to learn to do that in their relationships too. They're going to need to learn to do that if they have kids one day too. They're going to need to have that example that that's how you handle it when you mess up. You get to be transparent, do the right thing. It reminds me, there was a man who was checking in at the airport. He was checking his luggage. And uh, he asked them to, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send this bag to Chicago, this one to Atlanta, and this one to New York. And the clerk said, sir, we can't do that. He said, oh, yes, you can. You did it last week. I didn't even ask you to. <laughs> See, we all mess up, right? Let's just be honest about it. Let's be transparent about it. And again, you don't have to air your dirty laundry on social media and all that. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, please stop doing that, by the way. That's one of the worst ways for you to be transparent is just post that junk on social media, okay? That only needs to be for the people that it affects directly. You talk directly to them. You be transparent with them. But mostly you be transparent with God. That's the most important person that you need to be transparent with in your life is you go to him with those things and you find him to be loving and forgiving and his mercy to be there for you well the fourth characteristic is humility listen to what Paul says here beginning with verse 19 
He says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He's saying, friends, I want you to understand, there is one who can always do what he says he's going to do. There is one who has no limitations on the promises that he's made, and it's not me. It's Jesus Christ. He's the one you can put all your hope in, all your trust in. What I have noticed happening in our culture today is dangerous. It's dangerous because it looks great. And that is you teach your kids to always be dependent on you. To always be dependent on you. Doesn't it feel good when your kids come to you and want help and ask for counsel or wisdom, you know, ask you about decisions? And that's not an evil thing. But what you may be creating there is someone who puts their whole life dependency on you instead of where? On God. I love parents that want to pour into their kids and be there for their kids. It's a great thing. But you are limited. And some of you today on Mother's Day who don't have your mom now, you're missing them in a somewhat inappropriate way. You're missing them because you're saying things like, they were my whole life. They never should have been your whole life. God should be in that place and only God. You should love your mom. You should honor your mom. You should treasure your mom. But you should never make them your whole life, ever. It needs to be God. Neither should your dad be your whole life or your husband or your wife be your whole life. You're putting pressure on them that they can't live up to because moms get sick and die. They get old and die. Dads get sick and old and die or they have accidents and die. They can't always be there for you all the time. Life is not designed even to work that way. Their job is not to make it that way. Their job is to raise you so that you don't have to have them anymore. That's their job. So parents, we've got to relearn here what the role of mom and dad really is. It's to point them to God always. Point them to the one that they can always count on. And that requires humility on our part, right? We have to get our egos out of the way and stop living for, oh, oh my kids just worship me. They just always want to be around. My kids just think I'm the greatest. I'm the cool mom. I hear that all the time. You don't need to be the cool mom. Let me tell you that right now. That's not what your kids need most from you is to be the cool mom. What they need from you more than anything else is to be the holy mom. To God-fearing, God-loving, God-serving mom. That's what they need from you more than anything else. Grandmas too. That's what they need from you more than anything else. It's okay to do some cool things with your kids. I'm not saying you can't do that. But that shouldn't be the one thing they know you most for. So as adults and as Christ followers, here's the key. We've got to be humble enough to not think we've got to have people praising us. What we need to be is a vessel through which they praise God. 
I love how John did this. John the Baptist, remember when he was on the scene, Jesus was, was uh, coming onto the scene after John had already established his ministry and John had a lot of followers and they were coming out to John in the wilderness and being baptized by John in the wilderness. And on one occasion, John is there with some of his followers there and, and he sees Jesus walking across uh, the way from him. He looks at Jesus and here's what he says, he must become greater and I must become less. What humility. I need to become less so that in the process, Jesus can become greater. You know, I went back and read this. And you know what I read? I was reading the context of that verse. In the very next chapter, the Pharisees, it says this specifically in John 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That quickly it turned around. John had all these disciples, all these people he was baptizing. But when he pointed people to Jesus, Jesus started having more impact immediately when John made that decision to pull back and let Jesus be the one people are pointed to. You've got to get your ego out of the way and be humble to get yourself out of the spotlight so that you can let Jesus be seen through you and in you. And that's what the world needs to see in Christ's followers is not us, but him. More than ever, we need people to see Jesus in us. We need to be the presence and the aroma of Jesus to the world, to our culture. The final characteristic is this, sensitivity. Look at verse 23. We'll start there and go into chapter 2. He says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. He's saying, here's now, I want to tell you why I didn't come on that trip that I told you I was going to come on. And I want you to hear his heart when he tells them why he didn't come. Listen, okay? Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Now, we're going to go into chapter 2, but understanding the original letter, there were no chapters and verses, right? This was all just one one letter all together in one paragraph here, okay? So he goes on to chapter two. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who's left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. He says, I wrote a hard letter to you before. And I don't want you to think I just casually write that and teach that and say those things to you. I want you to know how it was so hard for me to write those things. And the reason it was so hard to write those things is because I love you so much. The moms sitting here today who've done a little raising of their kids understand this totally and completely. How hard it is to correct and rebuke and discipline that child that you love so much. But it's necessary. And that's what Paul is saying. 
I didn't want to make this other trip because I knew I had written this to you and how hard it was for you. And it was so hard for me to write it. And I know you're still working on it and trying to make the changes and the corrections. And I didn't want to go there in the middle of all that without you already understanding why I did it and understanding the changes that need to be made and already being able to make those changes. I didn't want it to be another hard, grieving kind of visit. I needed to be encouraged by you and I want you to be encouraged by me. See, there's a time for the discipline and the rebuke, and then there's a time for the encouragement. And Paul was sensitive enough to know it wasn't time yet for him to make that visit he said he was going to make. He had to allow some healing. He had to allow some recovery time. He had to allow for time for changes to be made that he had said needed to be made before he made that next visit to them. And as leaders for Christ, here's what we have to learn. We have to learn to be sensitive to the people around us. Part of the problem with with me as a Christ follower, and maybe you struggle with this too, is I want to be able to teach it and just see people do it. Right? Parents, don't you just want to be able to tell your kids one time? And then you see, all right, man, they're doing exactly what I said. If If you had a kid like that, God bless you. I would counsel you not to have another one. Because if you ever have more than one, it doesn't always go that way. Even with one, it doesn't always go that way, right? It's tough. You teach because you love them. And you think, man, if they just do what I was telling them, everything would be better for their lives. And they don't do it, right? As a Christ follower and a teacher and a pastor, that's one of the hardest things for me. Because people will will hear the word and they'll know what it says. And I made it clear. And they still go out and do something different. And then they get hurt. And they suffer. Or they hurt other people. And they suffer. And then they grieve over the hurt. And I grieve with them because it didn't have to be like that. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. He's grieving because they didn't have to go through all this hard stuff. They brought it on themselves with their rebellion and their sin. But he was sensitive to them and knew that he had done enough rebuking and now it was time for the healing and the encouragement to be there too. I want to close with a verse. It's the shortest verse in the Bible and you probably know it, right? Just two words in John eleven thirty-five. 35. It says what? Jesus wept. The greatest leader of all time grieved over certain things. What did Jesus grieve over? The first time we have him recorded in Scripture as grieving is when he came to the city of Jerusalem and he stood over the city before he entered into the city and he knew what was going to happen to him there. He knew they were going to rebel and they were going to put him on trial and beat him and crucify him. He knew that's what he was going in there to. But when he stood over the city, knowing they were going to do that to him, you know what he did? He wept over the city of Jerusalem, even knowing how they were going to treat him. And here's why he wept over them. He said, even then, if they would just repent, if they would just recognize who he was, if they would just accept God's plan of the Messiah for their lives, even then God would spare them. But he knew they weren't willing to do that. They weren't willing to change. He knew that 40 years later, the city was going to be completely destroyed. The city that was supposed to be the holy city of God, that was supposed to represent God to the world, God was going to level that city through a foreign enemy that would come in and invade the city and tear it down. And it grieved Jesus so much that they just wouldn't listen. And maybe you're listening online today or maybe you're in the room and 
and you've been hearing about Jesus and hearing about his teachings and you just, you've just not been willing to, to listen the way he wants you to listen. And I want you to know it grieves him, not because he wants you to be hurt or destroyed or disciplined, but because he doesn't want you to have to go through that. It grieves him because he wants better for you if you would just listen to him today. The other time we have recorded in Scripture where Jesus grieved is when he went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he stood outside that tomb and he saw Mary and Martha, his sisters there grieving. He saw the crowd there grieving at the tomb. And that was his friend in that tomb who had gone into death. And that moved him to grief and tears. Now, Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? He knew he was going to say the words and Lazarus was going to come back. But he still grieved over the hurt and the pain that sin and death bring into the world. It grieves him that we would have to face that. And I'm so thankful that he is so sensitive to that, that he was willing to go to the cross and pay that price so that even sin and death could not destroy us, could not have its hold on us anymore. And friend, as Christ followers, as leaders for Christ, here's what you need to know. Lost people should grieve us. Knowing that their sin is going to be their destruction should grieve us. It shouldn't make us mad that they sin. It should grieve us because we know the consequences of their life choices. You can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Christians need to stop doing that. We should expect Christians to act like Christians, not non-Christians. Non-Christians are going to act like non-Christians. But what should grieve us is if they don't come to know Jesus, they're going to be lost forever. And it should change how we feel about them and how we respond to them if we grieve over what grieves God. And today, God grieves over anyone who would have the opportunity and simply would not respond. So right now, we're going to close with a word of prayer and give you that opportunity. If you need to respond to God's call in your life today, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we've seen in these scriptures how, how Paul grieved over the hurt, the hurt and the pain that was caused by the sin and the rebellion in their lives and the correction that had to take place. I'm thankful for Paul's sensitivity to those in Corinth. Help us to have that kind of heart for lost people for people that are off course and making bad decisions and people that are hurting others, help us to, to care so much over them that we would grieve over them. But help us then to take the action we need to take of, of teaching with clarity and correction and doing it in humility where we're pointing them to Jesus. Help us, Father, to be leaders for you in this world. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.